ad70.net, where soon means soon, near means near, and at hand, well, it sure doesn't mean 2,000 years. Well, I want to welcome you back to another edition of Then and Now with Ed Stevens, where we're taking a look at our past so that we can better understand where it is we're going in our future. Stay with us. from the beautiful state of Pennsylvania, my friend Ed Stevens. How is it you're doing this afternoon? All right, Ed, hold on for just a minute. You there? I'm back with you. <laughs> actually, I think that, I hit my uh, mute button here or something, and uh, it threw us off. Yeah, actually, I do believe it was me that did that that time. <laughs> okay. Well, you well, know, I was fiddling with my mute button here to see what was going on. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I, uh, you know, just getting all this new hardware and software and everything set up, it just is amazing to me to, uh, to you know, I know I'm a multitasker. I'm multi-talented. <laughs> but you know what? When you throw additional keyboards and monitors in front of you, sometimes I think it's too much input. Yeah, well, the day may come when you actually have to have another human operator there in the uh, room with you to help you coordinate all that. Well, I'm telling you, brother, we, we've been praying for that, and we did find somebody, but at the, they're about 3,000 miles away. Mm. That, that makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, but you know what? It's, uh, it, it's, it's joy. It's a blessing to be here being able to do this uh, on a daily basis. And, you know, we appreciate people like you, Ed, for uh, just taking your time out of your week to prepare for all these studies and showing up on your Sunday evenings to hang out with us. Well, I enjoy it, and it gives me a, a chance to get back into the Word and really dig deeply and do research. And, you know, it's... It's helping me as I work through my master's degree because it's sharpening my skills and, and helping me uh, have an outlet for some of those studies that uh, we're, we're dealing with. Right. Well, we are in the book of Acts, specifically in the first chapter. And, uh, you know, we started this study here over the last couple of weeks as we are looking at uh, that first century history that followed the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where is it exactly we're going to be going today? Well, we're going to continue our study of Acts 1, 9 through 11, which is the text about the ascension of Christ, and we're trying to to understand exactly what it means when the two angels told the disciples who were standing there looking into the sky after Jesus had departed, what those two angels meant when they said that Jesus would return in like manner. Hmm. So that's uh, that's the thing that I really want to nail down because it's been a real sticky point for all of us preterists. And, you know, Gentry and Keith Matheson, R.C. Sproul, all of our critics, uh, as well as Tommy Ice and the Futurist, the Pre-Mill Dispensationalist, uh, Larry Sparigmo and Hank Hanegraaff, you, know, oh, you oh. name it. Every one of those guys has nailed us on this Acts 111 text. Now, do you mean, uh, is it Gary Spargimino? Uh, let's see. What? Yeah, Spargimino. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Uh, I didn't pronounce his name right. I, th- I thought it was Larry. It's Larry Spargimino. You know, I'm sorry. Right? It may have been Larry. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right on the last name, Spargimino. But you know how Texans are. We don't know how to pronounce anybody's name correctly. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, I think you guys do know how to pronounce one name correctly, and that is Bush. <laughs> 
That's right. And uh, Perry. I know how to pronounce Perry. Alrighty, my friend. Well, I'm. You know, this is a very interesting study. Uh, you know, this term in like manner. You know, please. Is there any way they could have? You know, go back. Let's rewind the clock two thousand years, approximately, and say, okay, guys, can you just say, you know what, like a VHS tape in reverse, or you know, in the same mode, in the same fashion, uh, you know, or exactly in like manner? Could you just? be a little bit more explicit because even though it seems pretty clear what's being spoken about there, you know, in other words, the, uh, you know, in, in the manner in which, you know, he left, not as in the, you know, an exact role reversal, play the tape backwards as, uh, you know, our old Bible answer man friend Walter Martin used to say. Yeah. You know, what was really interesting to me is to read, uh, John MacArthur's book, you know, The Second Coming, where he goes after us preterists quite heavily. Mm-hmm. And reading his statements there about Acts one eleven it was somewhat uh, irritating as well as uh, uh, amusing because it's irritating in the sense that he misrepresents us. He misunderstands what we're saying, and he's using only his exposure to a few preterists out there in uh, California to to judge all of us preterists by, and that's, I think, a little bit uh, uh, disingenuous for him to do that. But but nevertheless, he makes the statement uh, that if you take the preterist view literally and carefully and understand it the way those folks were explaining it to him, he says it means that we're denying not only the bodily ascension of Christ— but the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, obviously, that's a non sequitur, uh, as as debaters would say. It doesn't follow. It's not a logical conclusion that you can draw consistently from our argumentation on Acts one eleven. But that's where he takes it. And uh, the one point that I think he does make somewhat legitimately is that if we take this hyper-spiritualizing hermeneutic to its logical extreme we would be forced to deny that Jesus has a body in heaven and that, uh, that he was raised bodily and that he ascended bodily. And I guess he was exposed to a few preterists who took Acts 1, 9 through 11 as metaphorical language. Uh, I don't know many preterists who would take that approach. I think just about all the preterists I'm aware of, especially Don Preston and and uh, William Bell and others like that, they would they would certainly admit that Jesus ascended bodily and that he ascended visibly and ascended in the the eyesight and experience of those disciples who were there looking on. I don't I don't know any preterist who would deny that, uh, but evidently. John MacArthur knew some. He mentions Ward Finley in his book. And, really? And that may be, uh, at one time, what Ward Finley was saying, but I don't think Ward Finley teaches that now. You know, So uh, I think he needs to get a little bit of an update <laughs> on his views right. about what preterism is actually teaching here. Well, you know, my friend, uh, let's go ahead and get into this study. I do need to step out of the studio for a few minutes. I need to get some water and take care of a couple other things. I will be back, and I'll be monitoring from my iPhone. Very good. Sounds good. Thanks. 
Okay, so uh, if you're just now joining us here on this study, and this is the first time that you've been listening, uh, we've been dealing with Acts chapter 1 in the past three broadcasts, and we've somewhat covered the subject here of Acts 1, 9 through 11, where it's talking about in like manner. And I want to read the text again, just so that all of us will be on the same page here, literally, uh, as we study this subject. Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into heaven while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same manner as you have watched him go into heaven. And so it's that phrase, in the same manner, uh, that we're trying to nail down here. There's a lot of uh, futurist and partial preterist who have really hammered us on that text. And they're saying, look at there, Jesus ascended obviously in the eyesight of his disciples and the two angels who appeared to them as they were watching him go into heaven said to the disciples that he would return in the same manner as they saw him go. And so you can see the argumentation that our futurist uh, critics would have based on that text. They're trying to say that, that uh, Jesus is going to come back in a visible manner, just like he left in a visible manner. And, of course, uh, that's the main feature of that text, which they focus on, and it supports their position, and it also works against the preterist view normally, unless you take a literal view of the parousia, like those of us who believe there was a rapture. Uh, Then... The idea of a visible, personal, and experiential return of Christ is not a problem. And that's, of course, where I'm arguing my case from. And that's why I have no problem with this language here in Acts 1, 9 through 11. Uh, whenever the futurist challenge me on that text and say, Looky there, Jesus ascended visibly, so he has to come back visibly, I say, You're right. He did. And their jaw drops. They have nothing else to say. They thought I was going to challenge that. And when I agree with them on it, it takes the wind out of their sails. They don't have anything else to argue because that's the main point of their their whole attack on the preterist view using that verse. Now, I want to read some of their statements so that we can feel... The weight of this argument on behalf of the visibility of Christ's return, Uh, because there's a lot of people uh, within the preterist movement who try to get around that. Uh, And first of all, I want to look in the text itself that we've just read. Notice how many times the word visibility or the idea of visibility is mentioned in these three verses. Notice in verse 9, Acts 1 verse 9, After he said these things, he was lifted up 
while they were looking on. Notice there, there's the first occurrence of the idea of, of visibility. While they were looking on. And notice in the second half of that verse, it mentions visibility again. A cloud received him out of their sight. So they were looking on, and then a cloud received him out of their sight. Twice in the same verse, visibility of Christ at his ascension is mentioned. In verse 10, as they were gazing intently into heaven, there's the third reference to visibility. While he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Now notice verse 11. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? There's the fourth reference to visibility. Looking into heaven. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. There's five references to visibility in just three verses there. Now, that's the argument that several of our futurist critics have just stabbed us with. And they've stabbed us and broke it off in us. Uh, and I don't know how anybody could get around that. I mean, there's, there's one feature that's very prominent in these three verses, and that's the visibility of that event. There's no way you can get around that. And for us to deny that as being a part of the manner in which he returns uh, becomes very, very difficult. Uh, and no futurist, as far as I'm aware, would even listen to that argument. Uh, it's ludicrous to make the statement that, that uh, the visibility here is not the aspect in which Jesus would return. It certainly would seem to be one of the primary aspects, if not the central aspect, of his return that is mentioned when the, uh, the angels say he's going to return in the same manner as you have watched him go, especially since in that very phrase he mentions visibility. He will return in the same manner as you have watched him go into heaven. That just screams visibility. And uh, we're going to see that as we read some of the words here of Keith Matheson and R.C. Sproul. I'm, I'm referring to uh, an issue of Table Talk. It's the December 2000 issue of R.C. Sproul's uh, monthly magazine called Table Talk. And the opening article in that issue is entitled In Like Manner by R.C. Sproul Sr. And I want to read a few statements uh, out of his article here. He says in his opening uh, paragraph, In my book, The Last Days According to Jesus, I focused on the problem believers face with the time frame references in the New Testament prophecies concerning the return of Jesus. I pointed out that much of the ammunition used by higher critics who reject the inspiration of the Bible and who question the deity of Christ is drawn from the arsenal of New Testament prophecy. Most significantly, the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, have been used to prove that the Bible is errant and that Jesus himself was wrong about his predictions. 
The irony is that of all the prophecies in the New Testament, none demonstrate a more dramatic literal fulfillment than those of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed and that Jerusalem would be conquered and fall into the hands of the Gentiles. Such ideas were not just radical to Jesus' hearers. They were unthinkable. Yet in 70 A.D., less than a generation later, Jesus or Jerusalem was taken and the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Since these predictions came to pass with uncanny accuracy, we might expect they would serve as proof positive of the Bible's inspiration and the veracity of Jesus' claims to Messiahship. However, within the context of Jesus' predictions concerning Jerusalem and the temple, he included a prediction of his own coming. If he failed to come in the time frame he indicated, he would then he would then his he indicated he would <laughs> man that's a tough sentence there if he failed to come in the time frame he indicated that he would then his prediction was false and he was a false prophet according to biblical test hmm. two out of three is not good enough to qualify as a true prophet now uh, he's referring to Jesus' statement here that this generation will by no means take place until all these things take place, one of which was his own coming. His own coming is said to occur within that generation. Matthew 24, verse 30 is specifically the text. Uh, just three or four verses before he makes a statement that this generation will see all these things take place. Now, with that in view, then he goes on to talk about uh, the nature of that coming and why he says that uh, that there was some kind of a coming in 70 A.D., but it wasn't the final coming. And this is where I think R.C. Sproul shows himself most inconsistent because he doesn't anywhere try to prove that there are two different comings of Christ separated by thousands of years. He doesn't anywhere show from Jesus' own words that Jesus knew of and predicted two different returns. He just asserts that that's the case without any proof. Okay. Um, now, notice what he says here later on down in the article about Acts chapter 1, verse 11. He says, One of the texts that I do not think full preterists have explained adequately is the account of Christ's ascension in Acts 1, 9 through 11. And then he quotes the verse. He says, there is a strong accent here in these verses on the visual character of Jesus' ascension. Notice that the words watched, sight, looked, gazed, and saw are all employed by Luke in his narrative. It is clear that the departure of Christ from this earth was visible to his disciples. This was not an invisible event that took place in the spiritual realm. It was a space-time event that occurred in the empirical realm. It is also important to note that the literary form of this passage is that of historical narrative and not poetry. And this passage is conspicuously lacking in the graphic imagery of eschatological judgment events, 
imagery that frequently does not carry literal meaning in Scripture. In other words, he's saying like the Old Testament prophets who used apocalyptic language, he says that kind of language is not found in this context. This is literal historical narrative language. In other words, the plain sense of this text is that Luke was giving a report of the disciples' eyewitness experience of the departure of Christ at his ascension. Though the text does not explicitly say it, it is probable that the cloud that received Jesus out of their sight was the glory cloud, or Shekinah. As this took place, angels appeared who questioned disciples as to why they stood gazing into heaven. Obviously, they were gazing because their eyes had just beheld an amazing sight. Then the angels told them that this same Jesus would come in like manner to the way they saw him ascend. I think the words of the angels indicate that the return of Christ will be as visible as his departure. Now, this is what R.C. Sproul is uh, advocating here. He says, this text seems to preclude any possibility of an invisible return of Christ. Of course, when I say this, I know that both full preterist and anti-preterist will be quick to point out that when Jesus spoke of his coming in the Olivet Discourse, he also described that event in intensively visual imagery and mentioned the glory cloud. And so, I'm going to stop reading uh, R.C. here at this point and just deal with what he just said. Uh, he's admitting that he's got a consistency problem here. And he goes on to just uh, say, well, I don't know where I'm going to land on this. You know, He says, I feel the weight of this problem. I realize I'm inconsistent here, but he doesn't give us a good explanation of the problem. Now, here... Here's the problem he's alluding to. There's four texts in our New Testament which mention the return of Christ with explicit visual uh, language. Uh, one, of course, is, is Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, uh, where it says, Every eye shall see him, even or especially those who pierced him. And then there's Matthew 24, verse 30. There's uh, Matthew 16, 27, and 28. And uh, I forget what the other one is, but there's four of those that, that mention explicitly this idea of a visible return. And we, we know from uh, Before Jerusalem Fell, written by Ken Gentry, that he takes Revelation 1-7 as apocalyptic or symbolic or, or um, figurative language that it's the eye of faith that sees him return at 70 A.D. rather than their literal physical eyes seeing him in a visible way. Mm -hmm. And this is what uh, Sproul has difficulty with as well. He, he does not know how to handle this language in Matthew 24, verse 30, because he knows uh, if he says that's literal, visible then uh, he's going to have to agree with us preterists who say that that happened in 70 A.D., clearly. He believes that Matthew 24, verse 30, is referring to a coming of Christ in 70 A.D. Yet it says in that text that they would see him coming. Hmm. And so he has to 
spiritualize that language about seeing him coming. Same way Gentry does in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And same way Sproul also does in Matthew twenty or Matthew sixteen, verse twenty seven and twenty eight, where it says, They'll see the Son of Man coming. Some of you standing here will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky, and so on. So these are the kind of texts that they have difficulty with. All of our partial preterist critics are inconsistent on that. And we use their argumentation on Revelation one seven and Matthew 24, verse 30, to justify our non-visible return in Acts 1.11. And they squirm, and they have difficulty responding to us because they know we're going to come right back at them with their non-literal language in Matthew 24, verse 30, and Revelation 1.7. So, the... Uh, the pre-mill dispensationalists have a field day with this. They point out that both partial preterist and full preterist are inconsistent on these four or five texts that we are looking at here, uh, and that we cannot explain that visibility language consistently uh, through all the different texts that deal with the second coming of Christ. And so that's the problem that we're dealing with here, and, and I'm going to argue that we need to take them all consistently. Uh, uh, Mike, did you need to say something there? Nope. Okay, I, I thought I heard some language there. Maybe it's just uh, a, a CB radio coming in on through the, <laughs> the wiring here. No, you know what? I, actually, it might have been my fing- my hand hitting the, uh, the microphone cable. With the new setup, everything's kind of, uh, how do I say, happenstance right now? <laughs> So I'm uh, just, ha- you know, everything's kind of in the way, but we'll get it back to normal. Great. Okay. Well, it's good to have you back there, by the way. Well, uh, I've been back for about 20 minutes. <laughs> I hope you've got everything under control. Okay. Now I want to read some statements here by uh, Keith Matheson in his response book or his attack book. I, I don't like to call it a response book to us. Uh, I call it an attack hmm. on uh, us called When Shall These Things Be?, written back in 2004, seven years ago. In his own chapter in this book that he edited and uh, was the the primary editor for, in his chapter, I think on page uh, 188 and 189, he explains his position regarding Acts 1, 9 through 11. And I think some of his statements here deserve a little bit of our attention because they show not only the inconsistency of the partial preterist, but they show our own inconsistency as well. And it shows how Keith Matheson himself is struggling with some of these uh, inconsistencies in his own paradigm. And I want to make sure I got the right uh, pages here, 186 and 187. Okay, I was two pages off. Okay, in uh, 186 of When Shall These Things Be, in Keith Matheson's article there, his chapter, called The Eschatological Time Text of the New Testament, in the second paragraph, actually, on page 186, he says, In Acts 111, we are told that Jesus will come back in the same manner that the apostles saw him go into heaven. 
So, in what manner did Jesus go into heaven? Acts 1, 9 through 11 repeatedly emphasizes that Jesus' ascension was visible. The apostles watched Jesus ascend with their own eyes. Jesus was taken up while they watched. A cloud then received him out of their sight, implying that he was in their sight up to that point. As he went up, they looked steadfastly toward heaven. The two men in white asked the apostles why they were standing there gazing into heaven. They then were told, or they then told the apostles, that Jesus would come in the same manner that they had seen him go into heaven. In the space of three verses, there are five references to the fact that the apostles watched Jesus' body ascend and then disappear from their sight. The same body, this same Jesus, the King James Version says, the same Jesus, the same body of Jesus that was raised from the tomb, ascended before the eyes of the apostles. His ascension was as visible as his crucifixion and his resurrection. So, what was the manner in which Jesus went up to heaven? His body ascended in a visible manner. He did not merely disappear from their sight as he stood in front of them. Something drew the gaze of the apostles upward, and that something was Jesus' ascending body. We are told that Jesus ascended upward for some unstated distance and then disappeared into a cloud. The cloud may have been the cloud associated with the Shekinah glory, or it may have been nothing more than a literal cloud. But the idea communicated in the text is that Jesus ascended visibly to a point and then disappeared from the apostles' sight. Some may want to argue that the word heaven means the invisible throne room of God and that the disciples did not see Jesus go there with their own eyes. That argument, however, completely misses the point of the text and ignores the way the word heaven is used in Acts 1, 9 through 11. It also ignores the last words that the two men in white say to the disciples. They clearly say, you saw him go into heaven. Whatever heaven means, the disciples saw Jesus go there. The word translated heaven in this passage is the Greek word uranos, and it can be used to mean the invisible abode of God or the atmosphere above the earth, i.e. the sky, among other things. In Acts 1, 9 through 11, the word is used four times. Unfortunately, some English versions cause unnecessary confusion by translating uranos in this passage with two different English words. Some English versions, such as the NIV and the NASB, translate Uranus as sky the first two times, and then heaven the last two times. The New King James Version, however, which we are using, is more helpful in that it translates Uranus each time the same way as heaven. In order to understand what Uranus means in this passage, we have to note that the text says that the disciples looked toward heaven, that they were gazing up into heaven, that they saw him go into heaven. 
These statements make sense only if the word uranos is being used in the sense of sky. That's an interesting approach uh, for Matheson to take. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But he's hedging his bets here. Uh, You'll see that if you read on down through his uh, comments, you'll see why he has to have it sky, although he admits that it could be heaven. Uh, and and he has to have it as heaven in order for it to literally be an ascension of Christ into into the heaven. So it's interesting that he tries to hedge his bets here and allow it to be both ways at the same time. In other words, the use of the word uranos does not minimize or change the emphasis in the text on the visible manner of Christ's ascension. So he's trying to take the focus off the heaven and put it on the visibility, obviously, because that works in his favor. According to Acts one nine eleven, he says, Jesus' resurrection body ascended into the sky before the eyes of the apostles. At some point in his ascent, we aren't told at what point, he disappeared from their sight in a cloud. If the manner of Jesus' ascension was visibly and bodily the fundamental emphasis of the passage. And if Jesus will come again in the same manner that he ascended, then Jesus' return will be visible and bodily. This has not happened yet, so if Scripture can be trusted, the visible return of Christ is something that literally remains to be seen. That's an interesting play on words there, but uh, he's got a point. And I think all of us uh, who are preterists need to to do like uh, R.C. Sproul says. We need to feel the weight of this problem. And I don't think we really have. I think we have uh, tricked our way out of it and hyper-spiritualized our way out of the problem and swept it under the rug and tried to ignore it and hope it goes away rather than dealing honestly and faithfully with the text to see what it really says. You know, I think all of us uh, are guilty of that. I know I am. Uh, Quite often, I interpret a text based on what I need it to say or what I want it to say or what my paradigm forces it to say rather than what it actually says, you know, and and too many times the futurists are guilty of the same kind of thing, and they may very well be guilty of that here in this text, although I think as we look at it a little bit more carefully, uh, I suspect we'll, we'll see that, that they do have a point. But we need to be careful when we handle the text and look at all the different grammatical, contextual, historical, typological and cosmological elements that may help us understand that text. And we haven't looked much at the typological so far, and I want to deal with that if we have time tonight. Uh, but uh, I, I think we need to, 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 to look at a little more of the context here and wrestle with this visibility issue mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've read I've read um, Otto Randall Otto's book in preparation for this and 
it's disturbing for me to read some of the comments that he makes. But I think Randall Otto may be one of the reasons why MacArthur uh, takes the approach against us that he does, because Randall Otto tends to spiritualize this language, even right here in Acts chapter 1. And although I don't think Randall Otto would take this position, uh, the way he argues his case on the non-visible return of Christ would tend to move in the direction of ultimately denying the ascension was visible because he uses uh, that very language that's referred to there and uh, MacArthur evidently sees that as as implying that the ascension was not visible. At least that's the accusation that MacArthur makes about it. And it looks to me like he was uh, interacting with Randall Otto's book at that point. So that's the problem that we have to deal with, and we want to deal with it consistently. It's not it's not consistent for us to take this language here in Acts 1, 9 through 11 as literal, but then deny the visible return of Christ, which it mentions, and then go over to Acts or to Revelation 1, 7 and Matthew 24, verse 30 and Matthew 16, 27 and 28 and some of these other texts that talk about the return of Christ being visible, being seen, and... Uh, or you know, spiritualize those uh, as well. It, it, it's all one ball of wax. All these texts are intimately related to each other, and we just cannot play hopscotch with them like R.C. Sproul does and Keith Matheson. They want to separate them into two different returns, and they want to say that the return mentioned in Acts one eleven is still future, and they can't do that consistently. And that's why they have difficulty hyper-spiritualizing the language in Revelation 1-7. Uh, you know, gentry especially has difficulty with that. Uh, the the premo dispensationalists have just ripped him up one side and down the other over the inconsistency of taking Revelation 1-7 as, as figurative and then taking Acts 1-11 as as uh, literal, visible language. So that's the problem. And you can see why uh, we're going to have to be consistent in, in handling this. If we're going to say that uh, Revelation 1-7 is figurative, then to be consistent, we're going to have to say that the ascension was also figurative and not visible and not bodily that it was just speaking of some kind of a spiritualized notion of Christ ascending and not a literal bodily visible event. Uh, and that's, that's because we have to be consistent if we're going to take that language because Jesus is going to come back in the same manner in which he left. And visibility is very much a part of this text. And if we're going to say that that visibility is just hyper-spiritualized nonsense then we're going to have to say that the ascension itself was a figurative visibility and not a literal visibility. And I think that's a pretty good argument. Uh, I know we 
full preterists don't like to hear that kind of an argument used against us. But that's that's where MacArthur and these guys are taking it consistently and and um, and logically to its extreme. Uh, if we're going to make the approach that all these other texts are not speaking of a visible return, then we can't uh, have a visible ascension either because it's using the same kind of language and saying that the, that the ascension was in the same manner as this coming would be. And since the coming was invisible, that means his ascension had to be invisible as well. There's a there's a real problem there, and I don't think we have felt the weight of it, and I don't think we have honestly faced that issue and dealt with it consistently. And that's where I think the rapture view uh, really helps us as a preterist movement. I shared these arguments with uh, Tommy Ice several years ago uh, when we were at a Van Til conference together, and he said, well, at least you're consistent, Ed. He said... Uh, you're not like Ken Gentry and those partial prets. They cannot be consistent on this. Uh, and so he says you're consistently wrong, but at least you're consistent. And that's the key thing. Uh, if we're going to be consistently wrong, we need to be at least consistent. Hmm. Um, all right, so that's where we're headed here in our studies. And I want to share a, a few more thoughts here. Um, on YouTube... There's an atheist who has a, I think it's a five-part YouTube series entitled, Jesus Was Wrong. Hmm. And I don't know if you've ever watched that, Michael. No, Uh, I haven't seen it. You might go to that while we're talking here and (laughs) play the first session of that. Um, It's quite interesting. Hmm. Uh, but, But what you've got here is an atheist who has evidently been to seminary i mean he knows greek and uh, hebrew and uh he's got his theological theological ducks in a row he's he's a very sharp guy uh he's not your average uh feel uh, you know atheist who has done no theological study he, he really knows what he's talking about hmm. in a lot of areas and what he's done is he's gone through matthew chapter 24 and mark 13 uh, actually, Mark 13 is where he, he's basing his case. And looking at the time statements there and, and showing that Jesus is a false prophet, uh, just like R.C. Sproul was talking about in his article here. Uh, he's one of those higher critics mm-hmm. who has uh, criticized Jesus on the basis of his prediction to return in that generation in which he lived. And he shows that Jesus did, in fact, predict his return at that time. And therefore, since Jesus has not come back, Jesus is a false prophet. That's the, that's the nature of his uh, argumentation in those five-part series. And he interacts with a lot of preterists. He gives his email address out and invites uh, everybody to respond to his arguments. And he says later on in the second or third uh, series on that YouTube uh, video that um, several preterists had written him, emailed him, and and told him that uh, Christ fulfilled that he did come back in that generation, uh, and then he wrote him back and said, "Well, how? It's not historically recorded." 
And of course, the Preterists would say, "Well, he came back in the in the uh, armies, the Roman armies, when when they destroyed Jerusalem. That was Christ representative, or as Russell would say, a providential coming of Christ. And that's what uh, you know the partial Preterists do as well. They have this coming of some kind." Uh, in 70 A.D., a coming here, a coming there, a coming everywhere, make everybody happy. But uh, the, the, the atheist didn't buy into that. He says, oh, no, you don't. He says, this language that's used in Matthew 24, verse 30, is too explicit. Notice, notice what it says here, Matthew 24, verse 30. This is what the uh, atheist really hammered the preterist with. He says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, he said that, Jesus has said that several times. Matthew sixteen twenty eight, Matthew 16, or, or 20, 26, 64, and it's parallels in Mark and Luke. Over and over and over, he constantly stresses the fact that the Son of Man will come visibly, that they will see him. Uh, in his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus told Caiaphas and all the members of the Sanhedrin there that they would see him. Don't take his word for it. They're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that was in a context where it's very clear that Jesus was talking about seeing him at his return. There's no way you can get around that. Matthew, Matthew 26, verse 64. Look at that. And this is the kind of text that this atheist is using. He says it's very evident that Jesus is claiming that his return would be visible. And experiential. They're going to see it. They're going to know it. They're going to feel it. They're going to hear it. They're going to experience his return. It's not going to be something that they're going to miss and wonder about later and be confused about later. They're going to know and see it and experience it. Now, there's no way in the world we can have that kind of a coming with them still left around afterwards to talk about it. Because if they had experienced that kind of a coming, they would talk about it. And they would set the record straight when Papias, Polycarp, Ignatius, and all these other later writers after 70 A.D. are saying that the parousia is still future. If any of these Christians were still around after 70 A.D. who had experienced and seen the parousia... They would set the record straight. They wouldn't let Papias and Polycarp and Ignatius go around telling everybody that the second coming is still future. They'd set the record straight. And so the fact that they don't say anything about it and set the record straight implies one of two things. Either they were embarrassed about the non-fulfillment of it or they were not around to talk about the fulfillment of it. Because it's just impossible to believe that they could sit there and listen to the futurists keep teaching futurism when they already knew that the parousia had already occurred. There's a real problem there for us to deal with. And so 
Um, this is the issue, I think, that the uh, futurists, especially the partial preterists, are pressing down upon us. We need to feel the weight of this problem. It is a serious historical problem. You know, anytime there's a conflict between history and scripture, it means one of two things. It either means that scripture, uh, our, our understanding of scripture, our interpretation of scripture is mistaken, or it means that our understanding of history is mistaken. One of the two. Now, Scripture can never be mistaken, but our understanding of Scripture can be mistaken. And that's where the problem is uh, when, when there's a, a conflict between history and Scripture. We need to stop and take a careful look at our interpretation of Scripture to make sure that's not where the problem is. And once we know that our understanding of Scripture is correct, then we'll know that, that history is where the problem really is. But uh, in, in our case, we know that the parousia has occurred. I mean, preterists have written, what, a hundred books now showing that the time statements have to be taken seriously? Hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The preterist view has clearly been proven over and over and over again to be true. Our interpretation of the time statements is is correct. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and so the conflict with history has to lie in our understanding of history. And therefore, we need to go back into history and see why these post-70 Christians are still thinking that the parousia is still future. That doesn't match our expectations. If, if there was no visible experiential parousia of Christ, then perhaps we could think that, that uh, somehow or other they just missed it and didn't realize that Christ had already come. And therefore, they didn't set the record straight because they didn't really understand that the parousia had already occurred. But that really cannot work because the expectation statements in our New Testament show that they were expecting the parousia to occur. They were making statements like, Oh, our Lord, come. And how long... Oh, Lord, is it going to take before you return and vindicate us, etc.? I mean, there's just so many statements where they show how they were longing for his coming, and they loved his appearing. They were anxiously awaiting it. They were expecting it anxiously. All these statements that showed their expectations were very intense, and to believe that they experienced the events of eighty seventy and walked away and never thought about it again the rest of their life is just unthinkable, impossible. Uh, there's no way they could have done that. And I think a, a, a text that really points that out clearly 
is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I hope if you have your Bible, you'll flip over there to that. Uh, Notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5, uh, actually verse 4 and following. Uh, Paul is talking about the persecutions and afflictions that they were suffering there in Thessalonica. And he says, verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Now, when is that kingdom going to arrive? Obviously, at the parousia. They were expecting that. They were wanting to be a part of that kingdom when it arrived. They were expecting to be a part of it. They were suffering on behalf of that, he says here, for which indeed you are suffering. And then verse 6, he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, when that repayment came at 70 A.D., when he repaid those Jewish people with affliction because of their persecution of the church, do you think the Thessalonians would be expecting their relief from the persecution at the time they saw the punishment meted out upon their persecutors? I would think so. And that's exactly what Paul says to him. Notice he says, verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when... He says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Now, when is that? That's the parousia. Paul told these Thessalonians that they would get their relief from the persecution and they would get their entrance into the kingdom of God, verse 5, for which they're suffering, at the time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, we're not talking about visual language here. Much more than that. This is talking about experiential language. They're going to experience relief. It's not just they're going to see it with their eyes. They're going to experience something here. This is an experiential return of Christ. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, notice that phrase, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, who would be in the presence of the Lord at the time that he is revealed from heaven. Obviously, those who get relief, right? I mean, if you follow the context here, verse 7, he's going to give relief to you when he is revealed from heaven. So they'd have to be in his presence in order to get the relief. And how do we know that? Well, verse 10 is going to tell us. When he comes to be glorified in his saints... On that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, if you've got your text open here, Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six through ten, 
you can see the emphasis here. This is a one of the best expectation statements I have ever read in the entire New Testament. Now, we preterists are often focused exclusively on the time statements, and we ignore these expectation statements. But I challenge every one of you listening to this to go back through your New Testament, the whole New Testament, read back through there, and look for all the text that tell us what the New Testament saints were expecting to see and hear and experience at the parousia. This is one of them. Notice he says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now question, how in the world are they going to marvel at him if he's unseen, invisible, untouchable, and unexperienceable? I mean, think about that. If they didn't even see him at his coming, didn't even know he was there, How could they marvel at him? And if they did know he was there, and they did marvel at him, how could they walk away from that experience and live out the rest of their life and never mention that fact again? Even though some of their fellow Christians, like Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius, are saying that the parousia is still future. Yet they had experienced it. They knew that he had come back. They marveled at him. And yet they kept their mouth shut the rest of their life and never mentioned it again and let Polycarp and Papias and Ignatius say that it was still future. Now there's a problem there. There's a real serious historical problem there. And this this is something that we as preterists need to feel the weight of and i don't think we have honestly felt it and uh it's it's very uh inconsistent for us to say that the parousia is going to be invisible and non-experienced when we see what happens to that kind of idea after 70 a.d i don't think any of us have a really looked at the historical problem that we face as preterists. Uh, and that problem is very clear right here in this text of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And it ought to be clear in Acts chapter 1. Uh, let's go back to Acts 1 now and look at it in view of this kind of expectation that those first century saints had about the parousia. They were expecting to experience it. They were expecting to get relief from their persecution. They were expecting to be vindicated in the eyes of the watching Jews. They were expecting to marvel at Christ when he came. Not just know that he returned, but experience it. Get relief and marvel at him in his presence. Now, in view of that, How in the world does it bother us to say that Acts chapter 1 verse 11 is referring to a visible return of Christ? 
There's no problem there at all. Acts 1.11 becomes a very insignificant text in view of what we're facing in First or Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Acts 1.11 is nothing compared to the experiential language we find in these other expectation statements. And so that's the argument that I want to... Uh, throw out here for all of us to consider. I don't think we as preterists have seriously considered that problem. And we need to face it because Acts 111 is one of the big texts that our partial preterist critics keep throwing at us. And we have never really answered it to their satisfaction. And the only way I have found to answer it and make their jaw drop and make their jaws stop hinging back and forth and jawboning uh, is to simply agree with him and say, yeah, that's right. He is going to come in the same way he left, visibly, bodily, experientially. And he did that in 70 A.D. When he came, and they saw it, they experienced it, and they were caught up in the clouds to be with him forevermore afterwards. That's the only consistent way I've seen to answer Acts chapter 1, verse 11. And I don't see how in the world we can ever hope to, uh, to convince any real serious futurist if we don't take that approach. Hmm. Because uh, this is, in, in, in all of my studies with Tommy Ice and all these pre-trib rapture guys, pre-mills, dispensationalists, Acts 111 is, is their big text, uh, and they are not at all going to allow that to be an invisible return uh, in view of all the other texts that, that we've spiritualized away, uh, because they know, especially in the case of Matthew 26, verse 64, they know for sure that Jesus is promising a visible return. There's just no way you can get around that. Even if you're going to say that the return has to be in, in the first century, they're going to say, well, look there in Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to uh, Caiaphas, I tell you hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What did they see it? If not, Jesus lied because there's no there's no symbolic language. There's no figurative language there. There's no spiritualizing that text away. It's clearly a historical narrative language that's being used here by Jesus. He's telling those folks that they will see it with their own eyeballs. He's not talking metaphorically here. They're going to see his return but it's not going to be a real beneficial return for them. He's implying that they're going to be wiped out by that coming of the Son of Man. Now, the only way, I think, really to nail this down is, is, is textually. And that's why I suggested that we go back through the New Testament and look at all the statements that, that the New Testament writers give us in reference to what they were expecting to see and hear and experience at the parousia. Hmm. That's when we're going to see that 
Christ and the apostles are teaching a very experiential return of Christ. Right. And, all right, I think our time is up, isn't it? Uh, well, that was that was fast. <laughs> you know what? Uh, what? What do they say? Time's fun when you're having flies. <laughs> for sure, for well, sure. Tell, tell me, you weren't taking a glass, a drink of water when I said that? I, I was. I was getting a glass of water. Well, go grab a towel and wipe off your monitor. Uh, All right, my friend. I do appreciate you joining us on this Sunday afternoon, and I look forward to continuing our discussion. Your email address for any listeners that might have any questions. Preterist1 at preterist.org. All righty, my friend. Well, we will see you back here next week for another edition of Then and Now. God bless. Thank you. You are tuned to listener-supported AD70.net. We are Christian Radio from a slightly different point of view. Putting sanity back into Christianity is what we are doing here. We want to invite you to join with us as we take this message to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you'd like to, you can go to our website, AD70.net. You can click on the support tab over on the left-hand side of the page. You can make a one-time donation of any size. You can also become a regular subscriber for as little as $5 a month. I also want to remind you about our podcast page, which is located at thepodcast.org. You can go there and download a copy of this and all of our previous live broadcasts for free. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. Make sure you click on the like button, facebook.com forward slash preterist radio. God bless. We'll see you back here next time for another edition of Then and Now. Broadcasting live 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. This is AD70.net.